And we are looking at Mark's Gospel. And we're in this part, as Yako read to us earlier, where Jesus is taking the road to Jerusalem. And as he does that, this is the last bit before he gets there, as he does that, Mark is, Mark is one of the four authors of the Gospels. He wants us to consider, as Jesus is walking to Jerusalem, what does it mean to walk with him? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does that mean for you? What does it mean for you to be a Christian? And over the past two Sundays, we've seen what it means for your most intimate of relationships, marriage. And we've seen what it means for how you treat children, how you think of children, how you see children, and those whom the rest of society looks down on. And then last week we saw what it means for how you handle money. So being a Christian is very nitty-gritty stuff, isn't it? But in today's passage, what we're going to see is, is it will also transform the way you see success and ambition and the way you handle power and influence. Okay, first point then, what do you want? I mean, what, what do you want? Now, just imagine that uh, you have Jeff Bezos as a friend. You are good friends with Jeff Bezos. And one day, he turned to you, Jeff turned to you and said, what can I do for you? I mean, anything? You you name it and and I I will do it. You know, I've, I've, I've got the money, I've got the connections, I've got the influence. What do you want? And I'll do it for you. What would you reply to him? I mean, it's sort of like a modern-day Aladdin and the Golden Lamp, isn't it? Rub the lamp, out pops the genie. Your wish is my command. If you had that opportunity, what would you wish for? What would you want him to do for you? Now, imagine that your rich and powerful friend doesn't just have the power to fix your finances or pay off your mortgage or buy you stuff or work his connections to get you that job, but he also had the power to heal your hurts and mend your broken relationships. Would that change what you asked for? If he could do anything, then what would you ask for? I don't know if you noticed it, but here in this passage, Jesus asks the same question twice. First to the sons of Zebedee, James and John, verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? But then if you noticed, he asks exactly the same question to Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? What would you answer if Jesus asked you that question? Because what you answer says something, obviously, about what you most want, doesn't it? Because here is a man who could give you anything. And so what you ask for tells you something about what you think is most important in life or what you think you have to have for life to be right or for you to be happy, or for you to be successful in life. And yet, Jesus doesn't ask that question of James and John out of the blue, does he? As Tom was telling us this morning, look at the context. 
He is on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows what awaits him there. Verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's what Jesus is anticipating. But if that's what he is anticipating, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're anticipating something ever so slightly different, aren't they? They separate themselves off from the others as they're all walking along the road. They come up to Jesus on the road and they say, verse 34, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Bold, bold statement, isn't it? Okay, now when a child comes up to you, and if you're a parent or an aunt and, aunt and uncle or you help look after kids or whatever, if a child comes up to you and says, I've got something to tell you, and you say to them, sure, talk away, and they say, uh, I'm, I'm only going to tell you if you promise me you won't punish me. Okay, what are you supposed to say to that? Uh, I'm sorry, it doesn't really work like that. Now, that is how Jesus could have responded. He could have said, you want me to do anything you want for you. I'm sorry, it doesn't quite work like that. But that isn't how he responds, is he? Does he? Instead, to draw out what is going on in their hearts, he asks them the question, verse 36 again, what do you want me to do for you? What is that? What is going on in your heart? What is it that you most want? And Jesus has been talking about suffering and death, and they are thinking about position and prestige. Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So if you look at it, it is not just the question Jesus asks them that these two brothers, James and John, have in common with Bartimaeus. It's not just a question they have in common. It's that all three of them, the brothers and Bartimaeus, understand something of who Jesus is. James and John understand that he is the Messiah. He is the king, and he is going to be enthroned in glory. And Bartimaeus, when he hears that Jesus is passing by, verse 47, began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Interesting, isn't it? He, he's blind. He will not have seen any other blind people being healed by Jesus. He won't have seen the lepers who Jesus has cleansed. He won't have seen the dead whom Jesus has raised from the dead. But he's heard, and he has heard and understood that this Jesus of Nazareth must be the longed-for son of David, the heir to David's throne, the Messiah, the great king who is going to come, and when he comes, he is going to put everything right. So all three know he's the king. James and John and Bartimaeus, they all know he's the king. Where they differ is what they want the king to do for them. Because Bartimaeus understands, I deserve nothing. So he cries out for mercy. But what James and John want, what they want is power. They want fame. 
They want influence. They want to be raised up above everyone else. They want prominence. But when Jesus asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? He replies, verse 51, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. James and John want to be seen. Bartimaeus just wants to see. And they, James and John, are willing to sacrifice friendship to get it. You see, with, with Peter, these three, James and John and Peter, they made up Jesus' inner circle. Are they talking about Peter here? They're not, are they? They've left Peter down the road somewhere. They make no mention of Peter Because when it comes to the push, when it comes to prominence, when it comes to prestige or power, the less people that you have to share that with, the better. And so in their ambition, they're willing to discard their friend. But of course, what is striking about their request is not just their request, it's how the other disciples respond when they hear their request. Verse 41 And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why? Why indignant? Well, firstly, maybe they wanted those seats for themselves. Okay, maybe the other ten, maybe they've also been thinking about the future. They've also been anticipating what is coming. And they're imagining names in light, but it's not James and John's names. It's their name. Or maybe the brother's ambition and the thought that one of them might end up ruling over me, that they might be promoted over me, maybe that has stirred up their pride and their insecurity. I'm not having that. I'm not having them telling me what to do. I don't know if you've seen the videos of some of the videos that are out there about the goings on around poolsides of various Greek tourist hotels. But if you look at them, in the mornings when the doors to the poolside are opened, there is this mad rush of English and German tourists pushing past each other, each determined to beat everyone else to the best sunbeds around the poolside. And that's what's going on here, isn't it? It's the desire for the best sunbed. It's the desire for the best seat, for the top spot. And it's that competition to make sure nobody else gets there before you. But if you think about it, if we're honest with ourselves, it's, it's not what just goes on in Greek hotels. It's not just what goes on on the road to Jerusalem. It is what goes on in our own hearts. I mean, think about how you respond, how I respond, when someone else gets the praise or the prize or the position or the publications ahead of you, are you genuinely happy for them? Do you genuinely rejoice at their success? Or is there something inside you that just resents it just a bit? Or that thinks that should have or that could have been me? Or what about the inverse of that? Not when someone is successful, what what about when they fail? You know, when, when somebody who's close to you or maybe a competitor of yours, when things don't go so well for them, how do you respond? Is there just a part of you that's glad? Because that comes.
kind of cements your position ahead of them? Or how do you respond when someone treats you like a servant? Do you find yourself thinking, hey, you can't treat me like that. I'm not your servant. What about your prayers? Do your prayers ever give just a hint that God should use his power to make you look good, for you to come out of this situation looking good or, or to come out on top? Or do you ever, would you be happy if he had almost all the glory? You see, these things tell us something about how we value position or recognition or the desire to be first. And the question is, of course, is what is driving that desire? Second point then, why do you want it? What do you want and why do you want it? Okay, look at how Jesus responds to the disciples' indignation. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. You know you know this. How do they know? How do they know that rulers lord it over others and that the great people, the people we consider to be great, tell other people what to do? How do they know that? It's obvious, isn't it? That's just the way the world is. Whether it is the world of first century Roman Empire or the 21st century West, success is rising up above others. It's having more or earning more or publishing more than the next guy. It's coming out on top and beating others to the best seats of being able to tell others what to do and not have others telling you what to do. That's what it means to be great. That's what it means to make it. That's what success looks like. And Jesus says, you know that. Because that is the culture you swim in every day. And it shapes you and it tutors you and it conditions you to think that this is what life and making it in life look like. You probably don't know Adam Lockwood, but Adam Lockwood has tens of thousands of followers online, even though you are probably not one of them, okay, even though you've probably not heard of him. He has got those followers for free climbing scarily tall buildings like London's The Shard, which he climbed for the second time last week, just weeks after the injunction banning him from doing so again ran out. But at his first trial, after he did it the first time, the judge accused him of, of having a greed for celebrity. If that's true, he's just a child of the age, isn't he? And in his defense, his barrister, his attorney said, YouTube pays. YouTube pays, and not just financially. Money, likes, or for us, promotions, publications, they all pay. They all give us a high. They tell us this is what it means to make it. This is what is great. More positions, more power, more prestige, more influence than the next guy. Now, you might be sat there and thinking, yeah, but not for me, Martin. 
Those sort of things don't really turn me on. I'm not motivated by any of those things. Sure. What about personal freedom? What about the freedom to do whatever you want to do and not have anyone else telling you what you should do? To not have anyone else telling you what you can or can't do or who you can or can't be. You see, we all want power. We all want to be king, even if it's only over a kingdom where I'm the only subject. Okay, but look what Jesus says in verse 43. It shall not be so among you. Third point then, there is a better way. What do you want? Why do you want it? And there is a better way. Look at verses 43 and 44. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, by definition, a servant serves someone else, don't they? And a slave isn't just told what to do by others. They are owned by others. Now, if you were constructing a scale or a ladder of greatness, no one, then or now, would put a servant, let alone a slave, at the top. I mean, that is as ludicrous, like we saw last week, as, as a camel going through the eye of a needle. In, no, in which world is a slave the greatest? In Jesus' world. This is what true greatness looks like, he says. Because greatness is measured by service, not by the size of your platform. It's measured by the people you serve, not who serve you. And life consists not in promoting yourself, but in sacrificing yourself. And sacrificing yourself not for your dreams and ambitions, but for others. And to be first, you've got to be last. And to rise to the top, you've got to go to the bottom. And to be great, you must become the least. And to lead, you must serve. That, Mark is telling us, is what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to follow him down the road. Now, of course, if you read books on uh, leadership, contemporary books on leadership, this idea of a servant leader, it's got popular traction today, hasn't it? I mean, even in the world of business, even in an age of self-actualization, even in an age of being true to yourself, this idea of a servant leader has traction. Arthur C. Brooks, professor of leadership at Harvard Business School, author of the recent New York Times bestseller, From Strength to Strength. Interestingly, he gives serving others as one of the crucial ingredients to happiness later in life, in the second half of your life. In following the death of the Queen uh, this week, Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, wrote or tweeted, there is nothing more noble than to devote your life to the service of others. The problem is, the reason that they and others give for serving, ultimately it has you at the center. Ultimately it's about you. If you serve others, it will make you happier. It will make you a more noble person. It'll make you a more effective leader. And in time, it will make your company more profitable, none of which are wrong, except they're about you. You're serving for the gains or the glory 
that you get, which means ultimately it's service that is self-serving. So guys, we need a better motive than that. And only Christ can give you that better motive. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's quoting Daniel 7, where Daniel sees one like a Son of Man approaching God's throne, where he is given all power and authority, so that, Daniel 7, 14, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Who's the guy in the top seat? Who's the one who is exalted above everybody else? It's the Son of Man, the one to whom everyone else must bow. And Jesus is saying, I'm that Son of Man. And James and John and blind Bartimaeus are right, aren't they? He is the greatest of all kings. And yet that greatest of all kings says, yeah, and I came to serve, not to be served. And he serves by giving his life as a ransom for many. Now imagine a group of pirates and they capture the wife of a sea captain. What must that sea captain do to get his wife back? If he wants her back. Okay, let's assume he wants her back, okay? What's he got to do to get her back? He's got to pay a ransom, hasn't he? He's got to give money in exchange for her life. Or in the first century, if you wanted to, if you wanted to secure the release of prisoners of war, you had to pay a ransom. Or to obtain the freedom of a slave, he or she had to be ransomed. And someone in prison who couldn't pay their debts... They could only get out if someone else paid their debt, their ransom for them. But in the Old Testament, this word ransom was also used for the sacrifice that was made in exchange for someone whose life had been forfeited. Or it was used as a verb. Or when it was used as a verb, it was used to describe how God rescued, ransomed, redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. So Jesus is saying, that's what I've come to do. That's what I've come to do. And unlike every other person you think of as great, unlike all the metrics you use to assess greatness, I've not come to be served, but to serve. I've not come to take the first place, but the last. I have come to give myself as your ransom. Which begs the question, doesn't it? What do you need ransoming from? What war have you been taken prisoner in? What debt do you owe that you cannot repay? What have you been enslaved to that you need freeing from? Why is your life forfeit that Christ must give his life in exchange for yours? Well, look how Jesus follows up James and John's request for the best seats. Verse 38. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And the cup that he's talking about 
is the cup the prophets spoke about. It's the cup of God's wrath against sin, the cup that every one of us deserves to drink for the times when we have put ourselves first, when we have sacrificed our friends or our associates or our colleagues for our ambitions, or for when we have resented others' success or been glad at their failure or insisted on having things our way. And the baptism that he was to undergo was to be submerged under wave upon wave of suffering for our sin. And Jesus is saying, I've come to drink that cup. I've come to drink your cup. I've come to give myself in your place. I have come to suffer the wrath of God in place of you. And listen, when you know that's what you need, that's what I need, it's not the best seats you'll be asking for, is it, like James and John? Instead, like Bartimaeus, you will cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the great news is he will. You see, the crowd tell Bartimaeus, be quiet. Why do they tell him to be quiet? They're quite happy him being blind, aren't they? They're quite happy if he lives the rest of his days blind. Just as the world is okay with you and me continuing to think that greatness and making it in life is about power or possessions or prestige or publications. But Bartimaeus, he refuses to give up because he doesn't want to stay blind. He doesn't want to stay the way he is. And so verse 48, he cried out all the more. And then Mark tells us, verse 49, and Jesus stopped. I want you to think about that. What can make Jesus stop? He has set his face to Jerusalem and to the cross, and nothing and no one is going to stop him except one thing, a blind beggar crying out for mercy. And Jesus calls him to come and asks him that question of questions, verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. So again, James and John, they want to be seen Bartimaeus, he just wants to see. Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. The Irish writer Brian Keenan was held hostage in Beirut by Islamic Jihad for four and a half years. And on his release in 1990, he was asked, what are you gonna do, Brian, now that you're free? And he replied, I'm going to visit every country in the world, eat all the food of the world, drink all the drink of the world. He's Irish, after all. And I hope make love to every woman in the world, and then I might get a good night's sleep. Okay, what does Bartimaeus do when he's finally free, when he can finally see? Does he start planning a world, round-the-world trip to see the seven wonders of the ancient world? At last I get to see them. Does he start looking around the crowd, checking out all the beautiful women of the world? No, verse 52, immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. He starts the day by a road begging. 
he ends it following Jesus down that road. He starts it knowing Jesus of Nazareth is the longed-for king, but he ends it following his king on the road to Jerusalem and the cross. He starts it on the outside of a society that sees greatness as power and influence, and he has none of those. But he ends it as one who has been brought inside by the Jesus who has mercy upon him. And guys, Jesus does the same for us, doesn't he? You see, neither James nor John nor you or I deserve the best seats. And yet Paul says, nevertheless, Christ gives us them. He lifts us up. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We do not deserve any seat in Christ's kingdom, but in his mercy, he seats us in his kingdom. Guys, how will you live in response to that? You see, you could go on having your view of greatness and making it in life shaped by the world. Or you can do what Bartimaeus does and says, no, he's my king and I am going to follow him. And when you do, you will serve others, but you will do it for his glory, not for your own. And if you think about it, this is exactly what James and John did in the end. Here, they tell Jesus, sure, we can drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism without knowing what it was they were saying. But within a few days, they had watched as Jesus gave his life as a ransom for them. And then they saw him raised from the dead three days later. And like Bartimaeus, their lives were also transformed. And both of them became servant leaders and James was martyred and John was exiled because both followed the king who came to serve. The question is, is will you? You can see life as about power and position and prestige in whatever way that works it out in your life or career. Or like Bartimaeus, you can cry out for mercy and know that he will give it to you. And you can see your life transformed and you can discover the joy and the freedom of giving yourself away in service to God and others. And as you do, you'll be doing it for his glory and not your own. Let's pray.